If you would like to grab one of those pew Bibles in front of you, we are going to be making use of them this morning. But first, grab also your bulletin. We're only going to look at the gospel reading for a moment. I just want to call your attention to two primary verses here. Uh, Again, we have just seen how John the Baptist, who saw a dove come out of heaven and land on Jesus to tell him to tell everybody else that Jesus is the Christ, now, having been put into prison, says, wait a minute, I thought the kingdom was coming. What's going on here? And he sends his messengers, the messenger sends his messengers to Jesus to find out if he is indeed the one, if it is indeed what he is supposed to think. And when Jesus says the eyes of the blind are open as his first statement, don't miss that that's one thing no prophet in the Old Testament ever did. Prophets raised the dead, prophets cured leprosy, nobody opened the eyes of the blind. And that you do find written in the Psalter that Yahweh, the Lord, opens the eyes of the blind. And so this is very much an answer, oh yeah, I'm the one who is to come. But look then at what he says in verse 6, the final thing he says. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That is to say again then, I am not what anybody expected me to be. I am going to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. I am going to be a scandal to the world. I am going to be a particular scandal to the world. And while I will not spend much time on this idea this morning, the crucifix is a great example of this. The fact that most Christians can't stand the crucifix, that they put their nose up and they say, oh, that's too Catholic. Or they say something like, he's not on the cross anymore. And then they go and they get their nativity set and they put a little baby in the manger, even though he's not in the manger anymore. You see the hypocrisy of it there. The reason is because it's a scandal. You see your sin in the crucifix. You see the image of God that we don't want in the crucifix. Blessed is the one who can recognize that and beat your breast and say, that's where I should be. And yet that's my God dead for me that he might rise again. He is risen. (laughs) Hallelujah. So Jesus brings offense. Jesus divides families. Jesus brings a way that is narrow and few find it while the path to perdition is wide and many are on it. That also is an offense to modern sensibilities when we ask why some and not others or even why me and not others. We are offended that God would have mercy on whom God will have mercy and then judge those whom he will judge. And this is where this idea of election, predestination, comes to the fore. And that's where we're going to have to look at Romans chapter 9. But first, go to Malachi chapter 1, because that is the book we're wanting to look at today. In your pew Bible, this is page 801, Malachi chapter 1. I won't say much about who Malachi is, because we don't know. We know very little about him as a person. Again, only that he is, in all likelihood, the last prophet to come. And then if you read his words, it's not the most hopeful prophecy you ever got. Like, as I'm trying this year to get you to go home and open the Bible and read some more of what we just looked at this Sunday, this week it's going to be a little rougher. 
because most of what Malachi says is, you're not listening. You're not listening. And then that's why no more come. For 500 years, 500 years, no more prophets until John the Baptist arises. Now, we'll maybe get the time at the end here to talk a little about the scope of Malachi. But what I would rather do for this service specifically is make sure we get into this Romans text and tie it to chapter 1 here. Okay, so chapter 1, it begins by saying an oracle, or the word can mean burden. I prefer burden. A burden of the word of Jesus, the Lord, to Israel by my messenger. That's Malachi. Malachi is Hebrew for my messenger. Messenger, also the word for angel, by the way. He says this then, verses 2 through 5, I'm going to read. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say... How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Esau. Excuse me, I got that backwards, didn't I? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. That's the bit quoted in Romans 9. He goes on though, God's still speaking. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says. They may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. All right, so first idea in there is this. You don't know who Edom is, do you? I mean, kind of admit it, right? You, you, you might have heard of it. You kind of know it's a Bible term, but you really don't know where Edom is or, or like who might be descended from Edom. That's the point. Do you know who Jews are? You've heard of the Jews, right? Like they're still around, right? That's his point. These come from two brothers, Jacob, renamed Israel, and Esau, whose name also later becomes Edom. Israel's descendants, the Jews, God has blessed so that they have remained a people, even to this day. Whereas the people of Esau, the people of Edom, in that day had been torn down beyond or below their former glory and would never rise again. And in fact, that is the case. And that is the, the primary point he's trying to make to the Hebrew people here, which is that they have the promises and Esau does not. And so when they say, where are you, God? Why aren't you blessing us, God? Why aren't we having all of the success like the people around us, God? He says, don't you know that I've chosen you? Don't you see that I've set you apart? Don't you know that you have the promises and others do not? And again, this is where Paul is going to go with prejudice, not meaning hatred, but meaning zeal. Paul is going to go with zeal at this idea in Romans 9. Let's kind of pick it apart, though, here in the text, too. So it gets a little rough when he says, Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. And oftentimes, if you go look for this on the internet, you'll find pastors trying to make it sound like hate doesn't mean hate. Like it's just sort of doesn't like as much or set them aside or isn't giving the blessing. But the words are very clear in Hebrew. I mean, they're powerful words. Love as in I choose you, I hold you, I commit to you, and hate as in I never want to see you again. And to help with this a little bit, maybe remember this. 
that at the peak of Judah and at the peak of Israel's time as a nation, under David, under Solomon, and then later under Hezekiah, under Josiah, the Edomites, the sons of Esau, were subjected to the people of Israel. That is, they were under the rule of David's throne. But they will eventually rebel and cast off that rule, and then they will join with excuse me as I swallow, they will join with Babylon in tearing down Jerusalem when it is finally done. And it is said in the Psalter that they, they called out, tear it down, tear it down to the very foundations. That is to say, this people, this relation to the Jews who were not the Jews, were so filled with hate for the promises of the Jews that they wanted them to be destroyed. What you see here is a picture, a picture of Satan himself and all his angels, and all those who hate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, all those who set themselves against the true God and would not have his promises exist. In our day, that would be those who hate Christianity, who are gleeful to see that over the last two years, many churches have closed, or many are not reopening their doors, or many are telling people, stay away. People are glad right now that Christianity is weakening and suffering. And we, often like those in Judea, are saying, where is the Lord? Why doesn't he bless us? What is going on? So we find ourselves in a similar situation. And again, we are called then to remember, where are we? We are those who have the promises. And the promises don't come as we expect. John the Baptist sat in prison until his head was cut off. John the Baptist will rise again on the last day, glorious with eternal life, in a never-ending never innocence and righteousness, a new heavens and a new earth, with you. With you. That's really very different than having everything go well at school, or having the dream career you want, or getting the dream house finally built up, or being able to retire and do everything you want. Those are fine things if God gives them to you. But the fact is, and Malachi goes in this direction, at some point, the blessings of this world become curses to you when they become the burden that you become anxious about, when they become the idol that you must worship, when they become the thing that is more important to you than remembering that kingdom which is coming. One of the keys to understanding Christianity is to know that this world is more of a waiting room than an actual life. That's not to say the sunset wasn't beautiful last night. It was. That's the waiting room. The real thing's still coming. Yeah? Okay. So, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And then he talks about how he has already torn down Enam. And even if they should rebuild it, they will be torn down again. Uh, we know that this happens specifically when some of the Edomites join with the zealots of the Jews trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. And when Rome comes back and destroys the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple, in 70 AD, it is all laid waste, and no one survives that. The reason the Jews do survive is because they've already been cast to the wind in the diaspora, whereas the Edomites have not, nor do they have such promises. All right, so let's leave that there. And if you, would, you can put a mark, we may come back to Malachi's text if we have time, although I, I doubt it. Um, find your way to page 945. This is Romans chapter 9. If you've got your own Bible, it'll be on a different page. And again, 9, 10, and 11 are a major right turn in the book of Romans. Up to this point, the book's been very straightforward. Uh, chapter 1, God created the world. Chapter 2, there's sin. Chapter 3, 
That's your problem, not their problem. Chapter four, God has saved us. Chapter five, this is through faith. Chapter six, baptism gives faith. Chapter seven, you still experience sin. Chapter eight, that can't divide you from Christ. Chapter nine, what about the Jews? Right turn, right? Or left turn, however you want to look at it. It's, it's a bit of a shift. And his answer is election. Again, whoa, whoa, what's that? Most Christians today, if you ask them about election, they'll get like the cow looking at a new gate kind of look on their face. Election? What's that? And yet, they will be really quick to talk about things like free will and how salvation is a matter of the will. Even though you can't find that idea, free will, or even really the will, in the Bible at all. And once you're exposed to the idea of election, predestination, it starts to show up all over the place. We're going to see it very clearly in the section we look at from Romans chapter 9. I want you just to kind of glance at here, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, leading into our text, where he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ, verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why is Paul filled with anguish? Verse 3. Before or because I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's pretty bold. Paul's like, if I could have all the Jews believe in Christ, I'd go to hell. Wow, Paul. Wow. I'm not sure I'd go there with, with anybody. I'm pretty glad I'm not going to hell. That's forever. That's forever. And he says this as what we might call a hyperbole. He knows he can't do this. He's not going to atone for the sins of anybody. But his point is to say, really, before he even starts, I'm not sure I like what I'm going to say next. And this is important. You don't have to like the doctrine of election. You just have to believe it's what the Bible says. And then eventually you can begin to see it's for your good, even though your flesh, the sin within you, is never going to like it. Because it's a condemnation of your sin. Why would your sin like a condemnation of your sin? It's not going to. But the new man in you, the regenerate spirit in you, will begin to see how it's pretty good to be elected. It's pretty good to be chosen by God, to have the promises when no one else has the promises. All right. So verse 4, he talks about the Jews. He says, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. That is, the whole Old Testament was given to them. They have the fullness of God before time having come to them. What a blessing that is and was. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, that is their bloodline, according to the flesh, that is through Joseph and Mary, right, uh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. But then the question is this again, they got the promises, they got the covenants, they have everything given to them to say that you are adopted as the sons of God. And yet where Paul is now, who are his greatest persecutors when he goes from place to place in Greece? It's the Jews, it's the Jews. Certainly Alexander the metalsmith will give him some trouble because the idolatry being destroyed in Philippi causes a problem to the economy. But he's got allies in the synagogue that don't like what Paul is preaching about Christ being the fulfillment. And amazingly, Gentiles, nations, people who are not Jews, do believe this. They're excited about this. Yeah. So then, what about the word to the Jews? And this is very key then. Verse 6, it is not as though the word of God had failed. 
had a question on my Saturday morning show. If you don't know, I do a Saturday show on YouTube every Saturday, 9 to 11. And, and Meredith gets on it with me, too, so you can see her smiling face sometimes. Uh, we had a question. It was this. How long is baptism good for? How long is baptism good for? Because my child was baptized as an infant, but doesn't believe now. Has the baptism worn off? The answer is, baptism is good forever. Baptism gives you the promise of faith in Jesus. If you do not have faith in Jesus, you have rejected something that's good forever. The baptism is still good, but you have chosen not to be good. This is the same thing that occurs to those Jewish people down to this day who have a veil over their eyes and do not believe the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Savior of all mankind, them and the Gentiles alike. Hmm? He goes on. The word of God, God has not failed, but not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are Jews are Jews. Not all who are the sons of Abraham by flesh are sons of Abraham. Because not all are, he says that verse 7, children of Abraham because they are offspring through, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What does that mean? Do you remember that Abraham had more than one son? He only had one son by Sarah, but he had another son by a woman named Hagar. That son's name is Ishmael. And Ishmael eventually is driven out of the camp by God in a divorce which interestingly Malachi will say is a sign of the promise and not a reason for divorce to be okay to those people in his time who were saying, let's divorce everybody, it's great. Hagar and Ishmael are driven out because they are not children of the promise. And this is to be more than anything, again, a sign of how salvation works. It's by promise alone. And if you don't have the promise, you're not in. If you're not elected, you're not in. How do I know if I'm elected? It's pretty simple. You're baptized and you believe it. That's how. You believe Christ has risen from the dead. He is risen? Hallelujah. You actually believe that? You're elected. So, so don't worry about whether or not you're elected or how it happens. Just believe that it does happen. And that the author of that, again, is not us, but God. And that the issue of Abraham having two sons, but only one son who's a son of the promise, is a sign of how this works. That salvation is by promise, not by the works of the flesh. Do you remember how uh, Ishmael gets born? They're given the promise that salvation is going to come through Abraham's seed, but they don't want to wait. And so Sarah says, let's use this other woman. Let's make it happen. See, we're going to use human works to make the good of God come. God says, that's not the way it happens here. Yes? Okay. Continuing on with verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, that is of our works, of our efforts, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And this is why we Lutherans will always point you to baptism as the sign of your election, because it is to be a child of the promise that makes you elect. And baptism, if it is anything, according to the actual Bible, when you read the actual text, is a promise. I know, again, there's a lot of American Christians that want to say baptism is an ordinance and a symbol and something you must do, but it doesn't do anything. That's fine. They're making that up. They really are. They don't have a text to stand on. They'll go to Mark and they'll say you have to be immersed, but they won't look at Romans 6 and believe that it says baptism buries you in Christ and raises you in Christ. We can't fix that. And we really should stop arguing about it. Instead, what we should just do is insist that we've got the Bible and they don't and move on. Baptism is a promise. And since you are baptized, that makes you a child of the promise, an heir of the promise. Now remember, 
one can cut oneself off from the eternal promise. You don't have to worry about whether you've done that unless, in fact, you don't care. And then you're not going to worry about it because you don't care. That's what unbelief does, right? So again, if you're worried, don't worry about it. Uh, you're, you're in a good spot. Verse 9 goes on to talk more about this promise to Abraham. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son, right? So the promise is for Sarah's child, not Hagar's child. Verse 10, we move forward a whole generation. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, that's Abraham's one son by Sarah, though they, that's the two sons in her womb, were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, this is Rebecca, was told about Jacob and Esau, the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob. As it is written, Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right, so here's where it really does bind on the modern conscience, okay? We modern people want everything to be fair. We think somehow life is fair, even though we all tell our kids it's not. We all think it is. Right? We act like children. We're immature in our thoughts. We're immature more than our thoughts in our, in our feelings. Okay? It's, it's not about fairness. Grace is not fair by definition. When you take one of those homeless packets and you give it to someone on the street who you know is there, and if you give them money, they're going to use it for evil things. You're not doing that because they deserve it. You're giving them grace, which is not fair. When one of them throws it back in the car window at you, as one of our members had happened, that also isn't fair, but you've been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Again, that's grace. That's good. That's repaying evil with good. That's being bigger than the wicked world around us. Go back then and let's look at verse 11 to drive this home with regard to election. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, God chose one of them and said, that one gets the promises. Now, before you wonder about Esau's salvation, there's quite the possibility that he indeed does come to faith and believe. I don't know. Jesus will be the judge on the last day of Esau the man. The point here is, again, God chooses to give promises to whom he will give promises. And when they come, you believe them or you don't, and if you don't, that's not on God, that's on you. But the promises are always on God and only on God. And so if you are a Christian, if you believe that he is risen, <laughs> alleluia, you can know God chose you to believe that even before you were baptized. God chose you to believe that when you were knit together in your mother's womb. God chose you to believe that when you were born and put at your mother's breast. From your very infancy, God has known and created you to be his own and to adopt you out of this age of darkness and into his marvelous light as his son. That's election. That's predestination. And that is what the Bible says in many places. Again, the two I just referenced, both again in the Psalms, which you do well to open up and pray from time to time, if not daily. All right, again, so without you having done good or evil, God has already chosen you to be saved, but that's not fair. Stop it. He chose you. Rejoice. Be awakened. Know that you are his. Know that he has also died for the sins of the whole world, and no one who goes to hell won't deserve it. 
Everyone who goes to hell deserves it. What you've been chosen is to receive something you don't deserve, right? Hell is about justice. Heaven is about grace. You have been made heirs of grace. All right. This is God's purpose of election, the rest of verse 11. And there it is in the text. There's the word election. It doesn't say God's purpose of free will or God's purpose of giving people a chance to choose him or God's purpose of wanting you to love without him making you love. It doesn't say any of those things in the Bible. It just says election. You know how elections work or how they used to work, right? We choose the one that's going to be the governor, right? Uh, uh, So also God chooses you. uh, His purpose of election to continue. Notice, connected to this final part of the verse, not because of works. By grace. By grace. Not because of works. Without election, salvation by grace cannot be. It simply cannot be. If you have you choosing God, now you have it on you. And it's up to your heart and your will and your mind to decide to be a Christian. And frankly, if that's the case, we all go to hell because we all get what we deserve. So again, in order that God might show grace, he chooses just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right, we have two more verses from our reading, verses 14 and 15. Excuse me, three more verses, 14, 15, 16. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part, right? Is this fair? Is God being unfair? And he actually says, by no means. It's more than fair. It's not less than fair. It's more than fair. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will. Again, you want an argument against free will. It's right there. It depends not on human will or exertion, not on your efforts, but on God who has mercy. So as John the Baptist sat there in jail, wondering what's going to happen to me, as we sit here in these dark and latter days trying to figure out what's going to happen to us, Every one of our steps are laid out before us according to God's purpose of election. That is, again, so that God might save you. When in the book of Malachi, he tells those wealthy priests who are offering poor sacrifices at the altar and who are marrying foreign women and allowing their gods to be worshipped in Israel and who are then divorcing their Jewish wives in order to make this happen and saying all of it's okay. When all of this is going on and we don't know where to turn, what God says again is, none of it will be for the bad of my elect. And so to those priests who are building up wealth for themselves, he actually says to them, your wealth is going to be the refuse, the dung that I smear on your face. That is to say, it is in all of the things you get that are good in this life that you're going to lose faith. It's in all of the strength and greatness and victory that you have, I'm going to make that the thing that destroys you. But for my people, nothing will destroy them, whether it's good or bad, right? It's not that having things is bad. It's that sometimes for the faithless, God lets the thing, having things become bad. But for you who have faith in Christ, whether you are poor or whether you are rich, you have the secret of contentment, which is to know that this is a waiting room, that we're just passing through that we are sojourners in this exile, marching toward a homeland, that these bodies we wear are tents and we're gonna get buildings, that these bodies we wear are seeds and we're gonna be flowers, that God in Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity in order to adopt you as his people. And his messenger, John the Baptist, as much as any, greater than any born of women, 
knew how to find this out true. Like Paul, right? He learned how much he had to suffer for the name of Christ. So when you face trials of many kinds, remember, my brothers, that it is for the joy set before you, that you are being purified, you are being refined, your heart and mind is being made to see through this veil of tears and to that light which is dawning soon, of which, of course, Christmas is a beautiful foretaste. In the name of Jesus, amen.